This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Okay, uh, today I want to introduce Larry Ornstein, who will introduce our guest for today, and it should be an astounding conversation. (laughs) Really looking forward to it, Danny. Okay, how about Larry? You want to come up? Thank you, Duane. You notice Duane had to crouch down. I have to reach up. Um, I've known Danny a good many years. As I recall, we first met, I think it was at uh, Warner, not at Warner's, at um, Mark Warno's offices, Mark Warno Music offices. 1520 North Cower. 1520 North Cower. Telephone number. And I heard him play piano, and I said, hey, this guy is something. This guy is something. And as Danny recalls, I said, whoops, I'll be right back. And I went home, got my horn. Horn was only 15 minutes away at that point. It would take a half hour now. And I came back, and we played for several hours, and it was very enjoyable. I've always enjoyed Danny whenever I've met him. He's a stimulating guy. And he does something that is rather unique. Uh, As you know, if you read the body copy, not the headline, but the body copy in the announcement said that Danny is the vice president of forensic technology, forensic musicology at Warner Brothers. Okay, what is forensic musicology? He'll tell you all about it, so I'm not going to define it. But I will tell you that he is a very unique guy in many, many senses. Let me just digress for a little bit. Excuse me. We live, I believe, in a an ironic society. All of the marketing forces around us are dedicated to creating logos, to branding commodity goods. Sweaters are all the same. Shirts are all the same. The beers are all the same. But the marketing forces say, well, we'll brand this so that it We'll give it a, a logo, and we'll give it an identity so that it creates a difference. Yet with music, exactly the opposite has happened. We all write music and or lyrics, which are branded products. We own them, theoretically. And yet the society we live in tends to turn them into commodities. Hey, you want to share my file? Here, here, here. So the copyrights disappear, royalties disappear, and credits disappear. Danny stands at the opposite end of that activity. Um, he, he's a protector of, this, of, the, of the sea. Now, I don't mean pedal sea which has suspense and tension, and I don't mean middle C, which has comfort, 
and I don't mean high C, which has excitement, but Danny is a proponent, proponent of and protector of the circle C, which is one of our greatest possessions, that little C with a circle around it, followed by the year and our name. So Danny has protected our copyrights, and he has a lot to say, and I'm not going to say any more because Danny is my good friend and our friend, Danny Gould. Gonna close the doors, I'll be here for the next six hours. <laughs> Why is everybody staring at me? <laughs> no, not later, honey. I, I thought a catchy, catchy title would get your attention. So the subject of this mini dissertation is the origin of originality and its complexities and eccentricities. Fear not, it will be painless. In the interest of time and expedience, and on the advice of one of our staff members here, I had planned to encapsulate my thoughts, observations, and conclusions on this little sheet of three-inch square yellow paper. However, once I got rolling, I couldn't stop. <laughs> now, this may come as a complete shock to all of you. As I stand here in front of you about to be a moving target, I'm courageous enough to say what I'm about to say. But first, I would appreciate it, a very respectful moment while I quote from the liturgy before I paraphrase it. From Ecclesiastes 1.9, There is no new thing under the sun. And now I say, there is, but very occasionally, something absolutely new in written music today. Soon after, I wrote words to that effect in an article that was printed in the ASMAC newsletter, I received a phone call from Steve Allen, who took offense at that radical statement and admonished me for it. Put on the defense it was an opportunity for me to rattle off just a few examples from a very extensive list of presumed original songs whose melodies perilously mirror pre-existing copyrighted and well-protected and unprotected origins, one of which was his instrumental, Chitlins, which precariously resembles Ozamuggin written by Stuff Smith, copyright 1936. Steve momentarily deferred and accepted my luncheon invitation to continue the disputation. At the meeting, he graciously acknowledged my investigative, musically forensic diligence, and I, in turn, lauded his voluminous output of songs. It was a reverent impasse. Unfortunately, soon thereafter, 
Steve had a higher calling to the hereafter, and our budding friendship was regretfully discontinued. Who knows, had he lived, the subject of the origin of originality might have been produced and directed by Steve for one of his TV shows, Meeting of the Minds. I can picture it now. Seated at the table would be actors portraying Johann Sebastian Bach, also known as Bach, the borrower from a book of the same name, Sigmund Spaeth, the tune detective, and other illustrious composers and investigative musicologists. Now, the subject of originality and its eccentricities has terrorized, intimidated, and disquieted many a composer who finds it physically difficult composing at the piano with his fingers crossed. I expected a bigger laugh, but that's okay. <laughs> it is a serious subject which inadvertently affects the credibility, reliability, professional reputation, and health of talented individuals who in many of their confident moments audaciously deny vulnerability. The world-renowned Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev encountered the problem on November 20th, 1918. Following a performance in America of his Sonata Number no. 2, a critic from the magazine Musical America suggested the following recipe. Take one Schoenberg, a little Satie, then a shade of Scriabin and Stravinsky, and you will have a cocktail resembling the music of Prokofiev. Later in 1939, in a letter addressed to the editor of the journal, The Pioneer, a gentleman asked, will there come a time in musical development when all melodies and harmonies will run out? Prokofiev's reply was, quote, as so much music has been composed over such a long time, one is obviously tempted to believe that it will soon be impossible to write a new melody without repeating what has already been done. Then Prokofiev goes off in a different direction, which may interest some of you. He says, let us try to see whether indeed few combinations are possible in composing a melody. Let us take, for example, the game of chess. I'm sure this game is familiar to most of the readers of the, of the, excuse me, of the pioneer. I like it very much myself. Well, I knew a chess player who had the idea he would write a book in which he would give the best solution to any problem. Let us look at the result. The white pieces opening the game have 20 possibilities with the pawns advancing by one or two squares and the four different moves of the knights. Whatever white does, black has also 20 possibilities. Multiply 20 by 20 and we have already 400 variants by the second white move or 8,000 by the second black move. By the fourth white move, 
there will be 60 million and it can still be claimed that the game has not yet begun. So the idea of writing the book had to be abandoned. What happens in music? We begin a melody with a certain note. With a second note, we can choose any note in the octave above or below. In the octave above, we have 12 notes, and the same number in the octave below. If one adds to this, the original note, for we can repeat the same note in a melody, there will be at our disposal for the second note in the melody, 25 variants. And for the third, 25 multiplied by 25, that is 625 variants. Let us imagine a melody which is not particularly long, say eight notes. How many variants are there for such a melody? 25 multiplied by 25, seven times. In other words, 25 to the seventh power. How many does that make? Take a pencil and paper, fill your sheet up with sums, and you will get nearly six milliard possibilities. Milliard is a British phrase for a thousand million. There are six milliard combinations from which the composer can choose those which he needs for his melody. But this is not all, for the notes have a different duration and the rhythm completely changes the shape of a melody. Moreover, the harmony and the accompaniment give the melody a totally different character. These six milliard have to be multiplied several times to obtain all the possibilities. Donna, would you repeat all of that, please? Thank you. <laughs> Though there are no one-stop guaranteed remedies to prevent plagiarism, there, I said that feared word, there are some existing stratagem devices that are available to help avoid the potential damage to a composer's professional standing. I submit the following to assuage some anxieties. I don't mean to be, appear facetious, but you might want to try mixing the following for a neo-creative melange of unique yet serviceable results. Once having persuaded the usually unconvinced director and producer of your film. Minimalist, avant-garde progressions taken to new levels like Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Pierre Boulet, Terry Riley. However, who among you would have the courage to incur the wrath of any or many producers and directors to be inspired by John Cage and write a cue or cues called Three Minutes of Silence. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> and how about non-thematic by classical definition, aleatory compositions, just splashing your fingers on a keyboard, and variations of the first four notes of the worldwide public domain hymn, Oh Happy Day. 
best known as How Dry I Am, which have been utilized extensively and successfully by reputable composers and songwriters. A list can be furnished on request. However, just to remind you, the nearness of you. Van, you want to do a chorus? Da ba ba bam, da 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 dum. Vilja, Franz Lehár, Mary Widowals, The Breeze and I, How High the Moon, In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening, etc., etc., etc. I have a list of about 54 songs and melodies, some in reverse, bomb, 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 and so on, and some flatting the third. You have the verse to Buy Me a Vista Shane, The Shadow of Your Smile, bom, 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 so on and so forth. And atonal music in the style of Schillinger and Schoenberg, with their absence of a tonal center type of compositions. And if you are still in a creative dither, try dipping into the past and devise new variants of prior art, that is, pre-existing, guaranteed, worldwide, public domain, classical compositions, including deriving inspiration from, yes, the good old reliable Hannon piano books. Now remember, if you will, if remember how Aaron Copeland used Mexican folk and street tunes in El Salon, Mexico. And Billy the Kid and Rodeo contained authentic cowboy and western tunes. And in Appalachian Spring, he used the Shaker hymn tunes. Mind you, I'm not inducing you. As a matter of fact, there's a bill that is awaiting action in the Senate Judiciary Committee that makes it a federal crime to induce people to violate copyright. I'm merely suggesting an introduction to devices which may stimulate your creative juices, resulting in a successful outcome. Schoenberg did it for a host of composers. Schillinger did it for Gershwin. And others had composing mentors as well. After you meditate and cogitate and procrastinate and equivocate and you still find it difficult to innovate, then I advocate you imitate. <laughs> try to remember <laughs> try to remember what Sir Isaac Newton wrote in a letter to Robert Hook, February fifth, sixteen seventy five. Quote if I have seen further than you and Descartes, the French mathematician and philosopher, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. End quote. And words of wisdom I personally gleaned from a fortune cookie. The future is located in the past. And now, without disparaging the undisputed proven talent 
and originality of one of our most venerated songwriters, with the following exception. In order to make a point, I must reveal something I have previously re revealed to an audience of only four, me, myself, my shadow, and I. The revelation is a drum roll, please. Ray, thank you. The striking similarity between a song written in 1918 and copyrighted as an unpublished composition in 1938 and then copyrighted as a published composition in 1939 and its similarity to a song copyrighted in 1894, 24 years before the better known song was written and 45 years before the better known song was published. Please identify the first song. Somebody who's good at sight reading. Oh, Ray Charles, my have a policy. And now I will, I will have Ray Charles sight read the two bar phrases that are enclosed in the red marks. I can't, it says chorus. No, it's something I wrote. My response is, you said, what'd you say it was? Okay, thank you. Yes and no. The melody you just heard is from the verse of a song, I Don't Want to Play in Your Yard. Words by Philip Wingate, music by H.W. Petrie. That song, which achieved some notoriety in its time, is now worldwide public domain. And the other song, the most popular American patriotic song, is not worldwide public domain, and it is God Bless America. Now, as far as I'm certain, until today, this information that you just heard has remained unrevealed in the annals of American and international musical history. I chose to share it with this austere, respectful, and interested audience to emphasize the quote previously mentioned, there is no new thing under the sun. As the ABC radio personality Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. In response to a suggestion that was given to me by an ASMAC member during a recent phone conversation, I'd like to continue with an addendum 
to my previous remarks. The subject is of significant importance to all of you creative people, and that is file sharing, as Larry alluded to. To explain it comprehensively, but definitively and impressively, I'm going to read an article to you written by John Healy, the LA Times staff writer, written last year. John repertorially covered all the fine points as represented by both sides, far better than I could possibly respond to any of your anticipated questions on this very alarming and foreboding subject. I plan to read all of that depressing article, but I changed my mind. Instead, I'll read only a few paragraphs, and then I will segue to the current good news. And here I go. This was John Healy's back last year, the depressing news. Legal victory for file sharing. A U.S. appeals court says software used to swap songs and films online doesn't violate copyright law. It's a setback for the entertainment industry. And he goes on to say, Three years after it effectively shut down Napster for music piracy, a federal appeals court blessed a new generation of online file-sharing networks and scolded the entertainment industry for trying to stretch copyright law to thwart innovation. The decision by a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was a defeat from major record labels and Hollywood studios, which fear that runaway online piracy of songs and movies could destroy their businesses. And it was a victory for developers of rapidly evolving technologies that are changing how people get their entertainment. The battle over file sharing is now likely to shift to Washington. Congress is considering a bill that would crack down on the companies making the software used by millions to copy music, movies, and games over the internet. And I'm stopping the article there because I'm going to shift to the good news, which is more current. And it was in the International Musician, uh, the August issue, as well as other publications. And it reads, Supreme Court sides with the music industry. In a unanimous decision, the U.S. Supreme Court has reversed a ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in the case of MGM et al. versus Grokster et al., thus handing a victory to the music industry in the ongoing fight over digital file sharing. Applause, 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 etc. He goes on to say, the court held that developers of software violate federal copyright law when they provide computer users with the means to share unauthorized movie and music files from the internet. While the technology is capable of lawful use, 
The evidence suggested that more than 90% of the copyrighted works on these networks were not authorized to be shared. In response to the ruling, AFM, AFM President Thomas Lee said, The Supreme Court's decision is a move in the right direction for both the entertainment industry and online community. Illegal file sharing has harmed the families of millions of workers and artists for far too long. Most musicians who depend on legal downloading are ordinary session musicians receiving union-negotiated payments that fall drastically when sales fall. He continues the quote, the AFM wholeheartedly embraces the pursuit of this technology for lawful purposes. The Supreme Court's ruling lays the foundation for legitimate file sharing software providers to innovate and provide useful services that will benefit consumers without contributing to the pressing economic problem of music theft. That's good news, right? Now, notwithstanding the occasional doom and gloom inferred in this mini-discourse, I do hope your respective muses is kind and generous to all of you. You've been a wonderful audience. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Now, I hope, and I want to keep my fingers crossed, that I can answer some questions that you may have. And if not, I'll tap dance my way out of it. <laughs> David. When I met you, um, take out a yellow pad when talking about film composers and put Henry Mancini's name on the front page. I remember this. Turn the page and then put everyone else. Did you talk about that? Uh, somebody asked me, Danny, you've been in the business a couple of years. God willing, it'll be 35 years at Warner Brothers and four and a half at Paramount and so on and so forth. Now, you, you've worked with, you've, you've seen the scores when you prepare the cue sheets and you study all of the elements that go into the score. Who is your favorite screen composer? And this is how I respond. And Dave reminded me. I'm flattered that you remember that. I say to the person who's asking the question, uh, do you have two sheets of paper? And they quizzically say, what do you mean? Well, on this sheet of paper, you will put Henry Mancini. Now, on the second sheet of paper, you fill in the rest of it. He stood alone. He was my favorite. I don't know how you all felt about his music, but he was capable of writing everything, quarter tone music, uh, thematic, melodic people, all over the world still to this very day sing his melodies and attend concerts where they revivify his scores for Pops concerts. So thank you for reminding me. Are you listening, Henry? Okay. <laughs> Any other questions? Do you think that people who are accused of plagiarism do it unconsciously? Boy, it sounds like I planted the questions. These are wonderful questions. Uh, and my response, reflects an experience I had a few times in court as an expert witness. 
I asked our attorney, do me a favor, would you ask the other side if their client had scholastic uh, training in music? And he, can, he many of the times he came back and said, yes. I said, good. Now with that armament, I looked at both compositions for analysis and called on memory, but more to volumes that reflect the information, like dictionary of orchestral themes, or vocal themes, and other literature. And I probed and really, night and day, went through all these thematics and found a common denominator and called it to the attention of the court when it was necessary or to just our attorneys to try and make a, set, make a settlement that both parties avail themselves unconsciously melodies that they learned and used during the course of their studies in music at universities. So it was a wash. In one case, I prepared myself with the thematics that were common to both parties, and I transcribed in large manuscript paper with wide staves so that people, the jury, and other people could see what I've written. And uh, before the court convened, I tacked them up on a bulletin board, maybe 15 of them, and had all the information pertaining to the composers of the pre-existing music, and it was my turn to testify. And the judge said, all right, Mr. Gould, what do you have? I said, Your Honor, I have on the board melodies of both parties involved and other melodies that I think are common to both parties. And also the composer's names and the composer's birth date and death date to prove to you that it's 200, 300, 400 years old. All right, let's see what you had. And I had my little clavietta with me, and I demonstrated. Number one, Your Honor, was written by Johann Sebastian Bach, and it was written by the client, participant in the case, and so on and so forth. Number two, that took me about four minutes. I was at the number five and reciting each of the facts very slowly, deliberately, and definit definitively. And after about the sixth, the judge said, Mr. Gould, I think we all know where you're going. That's it. We won. It was a wash because com both composers inadvertently, subliminally remembered these thematics and it showed up in their melodies. Yes? In, in, in a case like that, do, do each of the members continue to collect the performances for the composition? Very good question. Each, uh, if it reached the dramatic proportions where there had to be a settlement or an attribution given to the winner, but in, in the case I just mentioned, it was a wash, so they just went on their merry way. But if it was a case where it was more dramatic and uh, our side won, we would demand, we would demand in a settlement or what have you, the results of the, uh, the legal uh, case that we receive uh, royalties, that we receive attribution on the cue sheet, and all of those necessary fair resolutions. But the case I just mentioned, 
went on its normal way. It was a wash. So they both got their royalties. Yes, Del Catcher. Uh, when, I, when I started in the business, there was talk about if you copied the first two bars of somebody else's melody, there was some kind of a rule that I was, you know where I'm stop, going Stop, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. <laughs> I don't want you to perpetuate that. <laughs> now this is a very common thing with professionals, with amateurs. Well, I understand that you, you can use three bars of any song without any possibility of uh, legal ramifications. Wrong, and I'll give you a, class, a couple of classical examples. Ennio Marconi, The Good, Bad, and Ugly. If we want to use this theme in a film to identify uh, Italian Western in a scene, we pay the piper. We, we go for a license from the publisher. And that took two seconds to perform. Um, I challenge one short phrase. I better sing it, my whistle's not good. Bum, ba dum, bum. Was used in a picture called, Warner Brothers picture, The World According to Garp. When in a scene, Robin Williams is pushing a perambulator with a child and he looks down and he says, I want you to give me a smile right now. You're not going to give me a smile. Oh, I'm going to get the, the uniform. And I said to myself, self, we're not going to pay $20,000 for that two-second use. I'm going to go into my good books and I'm going to look up those three notes. Now I'm going to tell you about the fourth note. We'll set that aside for a moment. Bum, ba -dum, bum. I found 10 citations by composers two, 300 years ago who use bum, 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 not necessarily the same note values, but bum, da, dum, bum, 10 of them. And I went to the chief counsel of Warner Brothers and I told him all of the circumstances and he looked me in the eye as John is doing right now and he said, Danny, you feel strongly about that? I said, very strongly. Go for it. We never heard from the composer, Walter Schumann, of because for this reason, I didn't, we're in E flat, C minor. C, D, E flat, C, C, D, E flat, F sharp. I didn't go to the F sharp, which was indigenous to his composition. If we did, we'd have to pay the piper. This is how many years, 10 years since the picture's released? Never heard. I'm often asked, as many people are, to copy something on a temp track. We get a temp track, they like something they hear. Instrument-wise, feel-wise, uh, chord-wise. Good question. I'm gonna answer that as soon as I think of the answer right here. <laughs> <laughs> question, on a practical basis, we have trailer, a trailer department, and they're very legitimate about their choices, about their payments. A trailer is a very important element in the film business. You have to capture that audience. You have to tease them in a minute, maybe two minutes, on television, wherever. And the producer and director of the trailers 
knows what he wants. He wants something active. He wants something energy. He wants something that, that will sound like, you know, the picture over here that has that energy. I'll tell our vendor composers, I want to come as close as possible to, to that uh, music from that picture because it has the energy. And the vendor composer who wants to please that director of the trailer and he wants to get future jobs, he will do that. And now the procedure has been, the trailer department said, this is the procedure. Whatever is written and produced by synthesizers or orchestra or what have you, when you're finished, send it over to Danny Gould. He will analyze it to the best of his ability, tell you whether uh, it is similar, the same as, or close to the one you, that inspired you. They do that. It's been, I've been doing that for a couple of years now. They send it over. Yeah. And I know how to talk to the vendor composers because they're musicians. I talk their language. I speak their language. And we do it on a nice base, no yelling and screaming. And I tell them, listen, I'm going to make a stock speech to you. I know exactly what you encountered. You encountered, you're the vendor composer, you've been hired and you get, you're getting nice sums of money to emulate the music from this particular picture because it had energy. I gotta tell you, it's too close. Now, I'm gonna also add to that, if you use it, and I'm not gonna sign off on it, but if you, you're forced to use it by the, the um, uh, director of the, of the, uh, the trailer, the people, well, there are many people listening, and the composer and publisher of that other piece will hear it. I know it's de minimis, but uh, we're going to let you go on this one. But next time Warner Brothers wants some of our music, boy, we're going to suck it to you uh, with the big sums. So we want to avoid that. I'm talking to the composer, the vendor composer. May I suggest, I can't do it for you, I can just say, at bar three, go vertically. At bar four, go horizontally. Just reverse what you've done. I'm not going to give you any notes. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, thank you, Mr. Google. That's very kind of you. They do. They send it to me. I sign off. But I will not sign off on anything that's, and I will, in, in diplomatic terms. And if I have to appear in front of the director of the, the trailer department, I will go up and say, and say to him the same speech that I'd made to the composer. You, this is de minimis use, be that as it may, you're going to have bad feelings between the publisher of that music and Warner Brothers, and they will get us circuitously in another area. The end of the story. You follow what I'm saying? Take it one step further about NBC. About NBC, they have the three notes, G, E, C, which is the three chimes. Uh, the, the three notes, G, E, C. The NBC, NBC. Now, the reason I'm asking this question is because I was fortunate to have the, I was fortunate enough to have a news theme on Channel 4 for 18 years. It didn't have those three notes in it, and I was lucky to have the publishing. Now, everything I hear on NBC always has those three notes. Yes. Is that copywritten? Yes. So they registered that for copyright many, many years ago. 
Ray, you remember that back back east, sure NBC Chance. They had a unit of three bars, and a player did it live. And you know that with the legal eagles attached to NBC, they registered it for copyright. Yes. Is it just a melody that is copyrightable, or what about harmony and orchestration? Very good question. Also, you might add rhythm. There was an attempt. The percussionists wanted to copyright some of their rhythm patterns, which you now find on the drum machine, you find it in live music. It never made any headway. So those patterns are not, but, God, I'm so tempted. I'm working on a case uh, for Warner Brothers. Uh, I better be careful, because the, the mics might be live. Uh, where a basso ostinato, basso ostinato is in question. And that's all I'll say about it, but I'll go back in time. Jerome Kern wrote a, uh, a melody called Kalua. This is a long time ago. And it was derivative, it was proven, of the music of another person's song who used it as a signature element of the composition, not as a basso ostinato that, that Jerome Kern used it as. And it was a law case Jerome Kern lost because it was so derivative, so sim strikingly similar to the use of the first person's melody. Now, you say the harmonies. Harmonies are less severe. The more important top priority is usually given to the melody, which is a signature, which is the important, the crux, the core of a composition or a thematic piece of material. And the harmonies uh, are not necessarily protectable, copyrightable in of itself, in of itself because it could be proven in court. Well, that's, uh, and I use the term very often and it served me well. It's, and I'll say it to all the arrangers present, it's an arranger's device, arranger's device to have that harmony, to work it into the melody. Does that satisfactorily answer the question? We've covered all the elements of a song, except the lyric. Two questions. How much of a lyric, I know you can't copyright a title, but how much of the lyric development thoughts can be utilized without it occurring plagiarism? Second question is there are conditions, I understand, in which you can literally use a melody or a series of melodies if you're doing a parody, because it has what's called, I believe, Social content. Fair use. I can answer that. Okay, let's take the second part of the question. Uh, in the copyright law, current copyright law, they speak of, in fact, I jotted down anticipating the question, they speak of uh, a parody, but they don't use that exact word. They um, speak in terms of uh, fair use. Uh, fair use has four factors. 
uh, that must pass the, the acid test before it's used. And most important is in parodies, in parodies, you can, now follow me, you can use just enough to evoke the original. Now that's a wide margin of judgment. And the court, in fact, the court uses it. I, I read a lot of uh, law reviews and law journals, and there's been a little smattering of common denominator use of the Latin phrase, which uh, is in the books, in the law journals and the law reviews, because it, it comes to pass, and that is de minimis non curat lex. It means the court is not very patient with small things. Get out of here. What are you doing? This is frivolous. And many judges have used it. But, as I mentioned to you in conversation, be careful. We take things at Warner Brothers case by case. I can, I think I can talk about, I think I can talk about Mad TV. Mad TV is a series of parodies. And they did their homework. They knew that uh, they could evoke enough, just enough, to pay off what was forthcoming in the, in the joke, in the, in the skit or what have you, and that's all they used. But I, I say this very guardedly, Larry, case by case. I wouldn't give any blanket statement. It would be dangerous to me. I'm working at Warner Brothers 35 years. I want to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> I jotted this down thinking this was going to come up. Fair use factors in the 1976 Copyright Act, Section 107. You can make an acronym out of this. First three letters, per, nat, ammo, f. Purpose and character of use, whether it's commercial or nonprofit. Two, the nature of the copyrighted work. Three, the amount and substantiality of portions used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. These are considerations that the legal eagles thought of when they put the four factors in. The fourth one, which is quite important, is the effect of use upon potential market or value of the copyrighted work. In other words, will it prevent you with a Will it preclude you from buying uh, the original once you've heard the parody? Oh, I don't need, I don't need this. That's why they want to uh, haul it in. They want to uh, protect the originator. You follow it? Oh, yes. Sampling. I'm sure you thought about sampling, did and many of you? That has come up in conversation and uh, in actuality. Under the auspices of de minimis, minimal use, or fair use doctrine, most musicians don't acknowledge, don't acknowledge most musicians, that's pretty terrifying right there, brief portions or seek consent from the copyright owners. They hear a drum lick or they hear a, a vocal, hey, that's good, let's put an intro. You can't do that can't do that. Even though it's de minimis, the publishers are probing into these fair use factors and they will nab you 
if not on the actuality, they'll nab you on, oh, you want to do business anymore? Wait until you try to do business. We'll sock it to you. Those, that type of retribution. So it's advisable to get permission from the copyright owners. Most of the time, case by case. Yes, Charles. You find that the uh, defense that composers will use is that they based it on something which is public domain. Oh. Uh, for instance, you know, I know that the, the melody from the Marine Hymn is based on a on an Offenbach opera, and you. And, but the funnier thing is, with Happy Birthday, uh, at the turn of the century, the Audubon Society uh, printed a song called Happy Birthday, which is the exact <laughs> same melody. Oh boy! But that's PD. Whoops! Whoops! Oh, hold everything. Now you're talking about Warner Brothers, who bought the publishing right. firm that owned Happy Birthday, a little company back back right. from Midwest. If you use Happy Birthday without the words, without the words, in a birthday setting, you better go for a license. <laughs> you follow me? Because you're trying to cheat us. Yeah. You hear that, fellas? Okay. <laughs> Uh, is that satisfactory answer? Yes, David. There's a famous quote, mediocre talents borrow, great talents steal outright. <laughs> mediocre talent borrow, great talent steals outright. Well, you said that, right? No, no. A good day. How do you put that in perspective? I don't know. You, you tell me what you think. It means. I Go ahead. I, I welcome it. Go ahead. Um, I think it's, it's like that old story of the Academy Awards. Was it Dimitri Tiamkin? Oh, yeah, Dimitri Tiamkin, in his acceptance speech, looked around very respectfully at this austere gathering. Thank the Academy for this award, and I want to thank my good friends. Ludwig van Beethoven and Richard Wagner because he utilized inadvertently, subliminally, what have you, melodies that he... Now, I mentioned earlier that I have a book in my office called Bach the Borrower. I wasn't being facetious. Bach was running dry and he lifted from himself. And the average... of. Uh, a listener to Bach would not say, oh, he lifted that from his other composition. But some professorial individual analyzed all of the music. So it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.